Right, good morning, church. Work in progress. So I want to welcome you. I want to welcome those who are joining us online today. Hey, I read that not long ago there was a woman who went into McDonald's. She got her order. She ate her hamburger, and then she went up and complained she didn't like her hamburger. Now, bear in mind, she ate the whole hamburger, but she's asking for a refund, which they wouldn't give her, but they offered to give her another hamburger, which wasn't good enough. And so she wound up throwing a water cooler over the counter and a wet floor sign. She pushed the cash registers off. She's cursing. Storms out of the McDonald's. It was all captured on video. Y'all want to see the video? No, me neither. But um, somebody, I read the story, and down in the comments down below, somebody had written, McDonald's, if the food doesn't kill you, one of the customers might. We live in an impatient society, right? So we get out there, we're walking to our car in the parking lot, and we're frustrated with the cars that are zooming around us. And then when we get in our car, we're a little bit frustrated with the slow pedestrians that are in front of us. Tend to be impatient. And yet, patience is one of the seven characteristics of love that's listed there in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In fact, in fact, it's the first one. Love is patient. Love God, love people, and serve others. And this month, we're talking on, we're focusing on loving people. And we've talked about already how love is the most satisfactory way to live life right? And especially the biblical kind of love, a love that focuses on giving rather than receiving, the love that is a choice and not just an emotional response, and we grow in that love. And last week, we talked about loving people through, through life groups and all that that entails. Today, I want to zero in on loving patience. If we're going to love with a biblical love, we're going to love people in our families, in our families, in our life groups, in our church, in our neighborhoods, at work, school, certainly people who might consider us enemies, it's going to require a lot of patience. So I, want, I just want to break it down this morning and talk about patient love. Now, this is going to be by way of reminder, I'm sure, for just about everybody in here. We kind of know these things, but they certainly bear repeating. So just looking at four aspects of a patient love, starting with, like the guy was singing in the song today, work in progress. Loving patience sees people as a work in process or a work in progress. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 2, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So what we're on a journey of faith here, and loving patience is recognizing that we're all on a, on a journey. We're all on the way to becoming what God wants us to be. We, we, we haven't arrived yet. We're becoming. And patience recognizes that other people are on that journey, that uh, they have not become yet either, and just gives people room to be imperfect. Give them a little space. Give them a little time to be imperfect. Uh, think of Father Abraham in the Old Testament. Father Abraham. He's our great example of faith. He's held up in the New Testament as this wonderful example of faith, and he is patriarch from the Old Testament. So you, but if you know part of his story, Abraham at one point, because of a famine in the land of Canaan, had to go to Egypt. And while they were in Egypt, Abraham's wife, Sarah, caught the eye of the Egyptian Pharaoh. And Abraham, fearing for his life, he was afraid that the Pharaoh might kill him in order to get Sarah, his wife. And so Abraham, our father in the faith, 
lied about his relationship to Sarah. Do you remember this? And said that Sarah was his sister and not his wife. And so Pharaoh took, Pharaoh took Sarah into his harem. And if God hadn't intervened, who knows what would have happened. But God did intervene, and they, Abraham and Sarah re, reunited. I suppose there was forgiveness, but that's really inspiring, isn't it, ladies? So years go by. Abraham is walking with the Lord. Of course, he grows in his faith like we all have to do. And God promises Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a son, and through that son there will be a blessing to many, many nations. So ultimately, he was an ancestor of the Messiah, Jesus. Abraham becomes prosperous and powerful. And then after many years, Abraham's path crosses the path of a Canaanite king. Once again, this king was attracted to Abraham's wife, Sarah. I mean, she must have been gorgeous. But he's attracted to her. But this time, Abraham, now he's got some more experience under his belt. He's got a few years, and he's walked with the Lord. And so he, man up, he mans up and stands by his woman, right? Wrong. Once again, Abraham lies about his relationship to Sarah and says, she's his sister. Why is this story even in the Bible? It makes all of us guys look terrible. Well, I don't know for sure, but maybe part of the reason this is in the Bible, Abraham, our great example, is because all of us are a, are a, a lot more like Abraham than maybe we're comfortable admitting. Do you feel like sometimes the journey of faith for you is three steps forward, two steps back? Three steps forward, maybe two steps forward and three steps back. And we progress and, and we mature and we gain some ground, but we always, we're, it's always like we're just on the edge of falling off, falling off that edge again. And so when we get impatient with people, this is a good thing to remember. Why does it happen? Why do we get impatient? Now, don't answer out loud, but think about this in your head for just a couple of seconds here. If we were in a life group and the question on the table was, why do we get impatient with other people? Think in your head, how would you answer that? Maybe, I'm sure there's more than one answer, but one of them has to be this. It's pride. It's pride on our part. When we look at that other person, what they've said or what they've done or what they haven't done, and we think to ourselves, you know, I would never, I would never say that. I would never be that lazy. I would never be that rude. I would never be that mean. I would never do what that person has done or what they're doing right now to me. You know, I'm above that. Now, that's pride. It is a failure to realize not only is everybody else in process, I'm in process too. Who has had to be patient with me? God. <laughs> Hasn't God been patient? How patient has God had to be with us? How long did it take us to respond to the gospel, to obey the gospel, just to be saved? He waited for us. And now that we're Christians, this whole process of sanctification, of becoming what we're supposed to be, as Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press on to take hold of that perfection for which Christ Jesus called me. Paul said, I'm in process. I'm working toward it. We're all in process. We are all a part of the family of Adam, this fallen family of Adam. And we're capable, all of us, of doing what Abraham did. And whatever that person is doing or saying that's getting on our last nerve, we are capable of that. So giving people room to be imperfect and recognizing we're in progress and in process, that is patient love. All right, let's break it down a little bit more. Patience, patient love has the power to change relationships. Patience that can change the relationships. Proverbs 25, 15. Through 
patience, a ruler can be persuaded. When the argument happens, if I respond with harsh words, then I become the enemy. And what happens with the enemy? It's fight or flight, right? So my spouse or my kids or my neighbor or whoever it is where the conflict is, they're either going to engage and we're going to get on that crazy cycle or they're going to flee. But we certainly will lose the opportunity to move that relationship in a positive direction. So instead of re responding harshly, we respond gently and patiently. Then we can move in there. And even if it's, if it's someone who's being particularly impatient with me, that's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to exercise great patience with that other person. Eventually, when you're arguing about some issue, the argument moves away from the issue. It's no longer about something that happened, and it's about the relationship. And there's great potential for damage to the relationship when that goes too far. It's patience that can change the dynamic of the relationship, patient love. When I was thinking about this, I recalled a documentary that I watched on Netflix by Ken Burns. Ken Burns does these great documentaries. He's done one on the Civil War. He's done one on baseball. This one was on the West, the settling of the American West. And in the course of this documentary, I remembered there was a kind of a love story that took place with, it was around 1904. And Ethel Waxham was a 21-year-old city girl. She grew up in Denver. She was educated at Wellesley. She was fluent in four languages. Her first full-time job that she took was as a school teacher at a one-room schoolhouse in the middle of Wisconsin, which was in the middle of nowhere. So she goes out to Wisconsin. She's living in a home with this rancher whose name was Mills and his wife and their three children. Those three children were one quarter of her students in the school. There weren't many visitors out there on the ranch in Wisconsin. But one fella who began to visit with increasing regularity was a man named John G. Love an uneducated, Scottish, rough sheep herder. And he was taken with Ethel Waxham. In fact, John Love fell in love with Ethel. But Ethel did not fall in love with John. And John proposed to her, and she summarily rejected his proposal for marriage. When her term was up at the school, she went back to Denver. She began working on her master's degree in literature. And that's when the letters began to come. John Love started writing her love letters. He's trying to woo her. He's trying to court her. A long-distance courtship that lasted for four years. They corresponded back and forth. Now, <clears throat> last week was Valentine's Day, and in honor of Valentine's Day, I'm just going to read you a handful of these letters. Now, I've got I've to condense them down. This is four years' worth of correspondence. I'm going to only read about a half a dozen letters here. But remember what we're talking about. Patience has the power to change relationships. So let me start off here. September 12, 1906, uh, a letter here from John Love. Dear Miss Waxham, I know the folly of hoping that your no is not final, but it, in spite of that knowledge, I will hope. I know that you have not been brought up to cook and labor. Well, I've never been on the lookout for a slave. I would not utter a word of censure if you never learned or if you made a batch of biscuits that proved fatal to my favorite dog. No problem. I will do my level best to win you, and if I fail, I still want your friendship just the same. With love and kisses, John G. Love. All right, that was September 12, 1906. December 13, 1906. Ethel responds, Dear Mr. Love, 
Since you signed your name with love and kisses, you must know I do not like it. And I will not continue to write since we're only friends. Do not expect any more letters from me unless you stop it. Ethel Waxham. January 31st, 1907. Dear Miss Waxham, I will always sign all letters properly in the future. Please forgive my errors of the past. I suppose that I ought to be satisfied with your friendship, but I won't. Yours sincerely, John Love. April 3rd, 1909. Now we've skipped ahead a couple of years. Lots of correspondence there. Dear Mr. Love, there are reasons galore why I should not write so often. I'm a beast to write at all because it makes you think that no is not no, but perhaps or yes. Good wishes for your busy season from EW. P.S. I like you very much. October 25th, 1909. Dear Miss Waxham, there is no use in my fixing up the house anymore until I know how it should be done. And I won't know that until you see it and say how it ought to be fixed. If you never see it, I don't want it fixed, for I won't live there. If you only would say yes, John Love. November 27th, 1909. Dear Mr. Love, suppose that you lost everything that you have and a little more. And suppose that for the best reason in the world I wanted you to ask me to say yes. What would you do? December 30th, 1909. Dear Miss Waxham, if I were with you, I would throw my arms around you and kiss you and wait eagerly for the kiss for which I have waited four years. Yours sincerely, John G. Love. Finally, in the spring of 1910, after four years of courtship by correspondence, Ethel Waxham agreed to be John Love's wife. And they were married. And she actually wrote a book, uh, Love on the Potsdam River. And uh, you can check that book out if you like. But it's all about their relationship and that courtship, how life was out there on the prairie. I just thought that was a nice Valentine's-y type of illustration to illustrate kind of what we all know, don't we? Patient love has the power to change relationships, the dynamic. Not the frustrated response, but the patient love. All right, thirdly, patience listens to understand. Patience listens to understand. James 1.19, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Being patient is not the same as doing nothing. If somebody's complaining to me, and especially if it's something that's hard, hard for me to hear, I can sit there and listen with a stony face. If I sit there and listen with a stony face, and without saying a word, I leave the room, I have not shown love. That is just isolation. That's selfishness. Patient love, listen. active listening is hard work. It's a person who loves enough to stay right there, to listen, and try to enter into the other person's hurt, if there's hurt, pain, to understand where they're coming from, what they're saying, to even get to the point where you can say, well, now here's what I hear you saying. Is this what you mean? And to say it back to them. That's, that is engaging. You know, if you went to an, an optometrist and in the midst of your description of your, whatever your eye problem was, he interrupted you and took off his glasses and said, here, try these on. And you put them on and say, well, that just makes it worse. And the optometrist said, I don't know why they work for me. Well, they don't work for me. And he says, try harder. All right, I'm try, I, I, I am trying harder. It's not working. And he gets mad and said, well, after all I've done for you, this is the thanks I get. You know, you wouldn't think much of that optometrist who prescribes before diagnosing or any doctor who prescribes before diagnosing understanding the problem diagnosing the problem that requires sitting down and listening 
and understanding. It was a, I read about a father who went to a counselor and he was complaining about his son. He said, I don't understand my son. He won't listen to a word I say. And the counselor said, well, let me say that back to you. You're telling me you don't understand your son because he won't listen to a word you say. That's right. I don't understand him. He won't listen to a word I say. And the counselor said, well, I always thought in order to understand someone, you needed to listen to what they had to say. And the father said, oh, yeah, yeah, I see where you're going here. I already understand him. I know everything he's going through. I've been through it, and I felt the same thing. That father didn't have a clue. He's taking his glasses and he's putting him on his son. He may not know where his son is coming. He may not have experienced the same thing. He may not have the same emotions that his son is going through. We listen. We engage. Uh, seven habits of highly effective people. Stephen Covey. Habit number five. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Seek first to understand and then to be understood. Patient love. It listens in order to understand. So what are we talking about? We're talking about loving people. It's all about loving people this month. And we're going to love people through patience, treating people as in process, understand that's the way to change a relationship, listening to understand. And then fourthly, patient love speaks with a gentle voice. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. With animals... It's stimulus and response. You know, you, you give the dog a bone, the dog will lick your hand. You give the dog a kick, the dog's going to bite you. <laughs> stimulus, response, stimulus, response. That's all animals know. Human beings, of all God's creatures, are the only ones, we are the only ones who have the ability to pause in between stimulus and response. We can pause, and instead of just reacting, we can make a values driven choice or decision of how we're going to respond. So even if the stimulus is negative or hurtful or harsh or painful, we don't automatically respond in like manner. We pause in between that stimulus and say, all right, what do I want to accomplish here in the relationship? A relationship is more important than being right right here. What do I want to communicate to this person? How can I communicate love? So we pause in between stimulus and response. Only people can do that. Remember the account in the Old Testament of David and Nabal. Before David was one of the great kings of Israel, he's out there fleeing Saul in the wilderness, and he's got his band of merry men, these 400 men that are following David. And Nabal was a sheep rancher. And during the grazing season, David and his men had protected Nabal and his shepherds and their sheep. So no predators armed his flocks, and no thieves or attackers got in there. They were like a wall of protection all through this uh, grazing season. When it came time to shear the sheep, then David sent some of his men to get remuneration. That's how things work, to get some remuneration. Well, you recall that Nabal, Nabal was a wicked man, and he sent David's messengers away empty-handed after insulting them. He wouldn't give them anything. Nabal. Nabal was the Matt Kuchar of the Old Testament. Any golfers in here? Did you read about Matt Kuchar last week? Now, this was interesting, if you're not familiar with it. Matt Kuchar is a professional golfer. He won a tournament. He won $1.3 million in this tournament. So he's got a caddy. Now, when you win a tournament as a professional golfer, you're supposed to tip your caddy. Any idea how much you're supposed to tip? Would anybody in here know that? I didn't know until I read 
10%. That's exactly right. You're supposed to tip 10% when you win a tournament. Well, 10% of $1.3 million is what? $130,000. Matt Kuchar tipped his caddy $5,000. And when that got out, there was an uproar, especially amongst the caddies, and no, none of the professional golfers came to his aid, and the next day he doubled down on it. And then he was asked about it by his reporters. He said, eh, he's lucky to get $5,000. I'm not losing any sleep over this. Oh, that just made things worse. Now, the next tournament he played, there were cat calls from the galley. You're the cheapskate golfer. And he's had to backpedal from that. Now, it looks like he's going to pay up and make it right. But his reputation has been damaged. Well, Nabal is the Matt Kuchar of the Old Testament. He owed this money, and he wouldn't pay anything. And he insulted David's men. And David, when he heard about that, you may know, he was enraged. And these 400 men that followed David were soldiers of fortune. And David said to his men, strap on your swords. We're going on the warpath. By this time tomorrow, there won't be a male left alive in Nabal's household. Boom, off they go. Of course, when uh, Nabal's wife Abigail heard what happened, that she was a wise woman, and she got together the provisions, saddled up the donkeys, and she intercepted David on the warpath, and she apologized for her husband. He said, he didn't know. You should have come to me, not him. Here's the provisions that he should have provided to you. And she spoke gentle words. Here's part of what she said. First Samuel 25, 30. She said to David, when the Lord has done all he promised and has made you, David, the leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. She said, David, don't do this. You're better than this. You're above this. You know, just forgive and let it go. And David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. A soft answer turns away wrath. Abigail's soft answer turned away the wrath of David. Saved a lot of lives that day. Well, that works in our families as well. A soft answer. Patient love. That's what changes a relationship. I think it was in Reader's Digest where I first read this story. Someone wrote in, when I was a kid, my mom liked to make breakfast food for dinner every now and then. And I remember one night in particular when she had made breakfast after a long, hard day at work. On that evening so long ago, my mom placed a plate of egg, sausage, and extremely burned biscuits in front of my dad. I remember waiting to see if anyone noticed. Yet all my dad did was reach for the biscuits, smile at my mom, and ask me how my day was at school. I don't remember what I told him that night, but I do remember him watch, watching him smear butter and jelly on that biscuit and eat every bite. When I got up from the table that evening, I remember hearing my mom apologize to my dad for burning the biscuits, and I'll never forget what he said. Honey, I love burned biscuits. Later that night, I went to kiss Daddy goodnight, and I asked him if he really liked his biscuits burned. He wrapped his arms around me, and he said, Honey, your mama put a hard day in at work, and she's real tired. And besides, a little burnt biscuit never hurt anyone. Every one of us holds a key. It's a key to our own happiness, our own contentment, our own peace. That key is the, is the control that we have 
over our attitudes, our choices, and our responses. And one of the biggest mistakes that we can make is to take, is to take your key and hand that over to somebody else. Don't give that control to any other person. Nobody else controls how you respond in any given set of circumstances. And what we choose to do, what the Bible challenges us to do, is use that key to, to make a values-driven choice, response, reaction that reflects the love that we have, that God wants us to have for every other person who's in process just like we are who we value. We value the relationship over whatever is happening at that time. That's our choice to respond in kind, gentle, patient love. It's not something we just work at with our own our willpower. Patience is not just one of the seven characteristics of love. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Something we can pray about. People say, well, don't ask God for patience. He'll send all these terrible things into your life. That's ridiculous. Hard things are going to happen in everybody's life no matter what. The question is, are we going to respond to those things with patient love or not? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we in this room today, we are loving. We are kind. We are patient. We are joyful. We are good. We are faithful. We are self-controlled. Our Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will make those things true of us in our lives. As we simply remember this morning, we simply remind ourselves this morning what love, real hard love looks like. It looks like patience. And we pray your Holy Spirit will produce that fruit in our lives, our life groups, our church today, in our families, and in our neighborhoods, in our friendships, in our workplaces and in our schools. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.